The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. You know, the spiritual side of our life affects every other side of our life. Because you probably walked in here today with something on your mind that you would like for God to bless. You probably were thinking, man, there's this relationship or these finances or this initiative or my career or, you know, whatever it is, something that you wanted God to bless. There's some circumstance you want to see God at work. We want to be blessed. If you have a relationship with God, if you see yourself as a spiritual person or even consider yourself a Christian, you want to see God's blessing. You see the things that work out in your life in light of the spiritual things. The spiritual stuff affects every other category of our life. And that's great. But the the reverse is true. When there's disappointments in our life, we also kind of bring that before God being like, hey, what happened here? So I I faced a disappointment earlier uh, this week. Um, My wife, Rebecca, and I were out on on a date, and we went to this one restaurant where they have this particular meal that whenever we go to this restaurant, that is what we get. They have this chicken marsala that is, I mean, it is amazing, okay? And typically... Um, when we go to a restaurant, we both order something different, you know, that way I can try what she got and she can try what I got if I'm feeling generous, okay? And um, usually that's kind of the exchange, but, but when we go here, just unapologetically, we're going to get the chicken marsala because it's incredible. And so like we are heading towards the restaurant. We don't even need to look at the menu. We know what we're going to get, okay? The, the server comes by. We order the chicken marsala. It arrives, the steaming plate. There's pasta and there's a chicken with all the sauce. And man, I've never wanted to give thanks to the Lord more than in that moment, okay? Like we're, we're, we say grace and I just get this, this spoonful and I put it in my mouth and it was just okay. I don't know if you've ever had the trial in your life where a restaurant that you love has this dish and they go and mess with perfection. Have you ever gone through that? Okay. Uh, to say I was in that moment, I was disappointed and I realized how much I had been looking forward to that particular meal all week. I didn't even realize that. I'm like, I think I've been daydreaming about this chicken marsala. Like I had a dream a couple nights ago, I think, about this chicken marsala. And like, I know that in the scheme of this world, there are bigger issues going on. There's evils in this world and, and those evils are like a 10 on 10 out of 10, okay? And I know that when they change the marsala recipe, that's not a 10. I mean, it's like a nine, okay? It's just, no, not a 10. I admit that, okay? And, and, but I went through that disappointment. Now, here's the reality about disappointments. Whether they're little or big, we got to wrestle through these disappointments. And typically, the bigger these disappointments are, I was expecting one thing and got another. Then we have to take that before God, and we've got questions. God, what am I supposed to do with this? I was asking you for one thing and I got another. Like, what does that mean? Is something wrong? Like, let me just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Maybe you just started coming to church like a few weeks or a few months ago and your friend invited you and you you came and the first time you weren't very sure, but just something, you just felt like God, you just connected with God and so you came back 
And then you started coming back each week, and you're just, you feel yourself just kind of seeking, seeking, seeking. And then there's just that one weekend where at the end of the service, you prayed that prayer, and you just took that step. You didn't have all your questions answered, but you just took that step of faith. And, and it was like you, like, walked out that day, and you were just, like, you just felt that joy. Like, you just felt like a freedom. Like, you just surrendered to God, surrendered to Jesus, put your faith in him, and you just felt like that freedom. Maybe you even got baptized recently, and you, you just took that step. And, man, everything feels different. You know, going to, to work feels different, engaging your family. And, and so, like, everything's going good, and you're like, wow, this is the best thing I've ever done. And then out of nowhere, things get hard, harder than they were. And you're like, okay, Time out, God. I thought if I was growing closer to you, like I thought if I was taking a step towards you, things would get easier. Like let me paint another scenario. Um, uh, about a year and a half ago, February 2018, we launched a two-year generosity initiative called Extravagant. And what we said is our vision is to reach South Florida with the gospel. We want to see our city transformed. And so we're at the final stretch here, these last like six months of this initiative. And many, and really our heart was, we're not just going to say we love our city, like we're going to demonstrate it. And so um, we're, we're going to leverage our lives, leverage our finances to see the South Florida reach with the gospel. And so many of our families, my family, many of your families, we stretched financially more than we ever have before. And I can tell you, there are stories from that season, from this past season, where there are families that say, man, we stretched more than we ever have financially, and it's been crazy. Like, the moment we stretched in generosity, God's, like, immediately blessed. Like, I know of a family, like, they, like, were like, I don't think I can do this. They actually filled out a commitment card, and they're like, I don't think I can do this, and they turned it in, and literally the next day, they got a promotion. And like, man, that's amazing. Like, what an incredible blessing. But I can also tell you some stories of families right here in our church family that they like, they were felt pushed by the Lord and they're stretching financially and they, they, they started giving and immediately they entered into the most difficult financial season of their life. Like, what do you do with that spiritually? Like, God, I, I mean, I thought if I take this step of obedience, like I'm expecting you to like come in and like swoop in and bless. Maybe that step of obedience is something different for you. Maybe, um, you said, okay, Lord, I know that this relationship, you've been coming to church and, you know, you went to church when you were little, but, you know, you're kind of coming back to church and you're like, look, it's not going to be this like three or four times a year thing. Like this is going to be part of my rhythm because I want to grow in my relationship with the Lord. And you started coming back to church. You start growing closer to Jesus and you, re and you realize, I, I know that this dating relationship I'm in is not pleasing to you. I know I'm not doing the right thing with this. And so you'd make the tough decision and maybe you part ways in that relationship and you're expecting on the other side of that obedience that God's going to swoop in and just like kind of like make everything okay but what you found is on the other side of that obedience is just loneliness and you're like God what is going on here and, and maybe you step back and you say like I guess I just don't understand how blessing works you know maybe um Maybe the way you've heard it before, there's other traditions when they talk about blessing, they use this word, they say, God's favor. They might say something like, I'm highly favored, or you're highly favored. They talk about blessing in terms of favor. Like, how does that work? In those moments where there's disappointments and there's difficulties, we stop and say, okay, 
God, how does favor work? How do I get more of it? What is that supposed to look like? What should I expect as a Christian? Like, should I expect, like, the more I get of God, like, the more favor and blessing and good things? I'm like, just help me know what should I expect? What does favor look like? How do I get it more in my life? And there's a passage that directly addresses what favor looks like. And I want to I share it with you today. I want to dig into it with you today. If you'd open in your Bible, your Bible app, to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. One. <clears throat> Let's take a look at what this says about favor. This is a beautiful story. First Samuel chapter one. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. All of that is included just so that we know this is a historical story. Like this is, this is an ancient way of, of like putting a citation, like a footnote. This is saying this is a real dude. Okay, verse two. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children but Hannah had no children. Now, right off the bat, you see that this family is going to have problems. There are two wives. That's not a recipe for success, okay? This is a difficulty. Now, here's the first thing I want you to see. There are some people that say, look, there's polygamy in the Bible. The Bible endorses polygamy. Those are two separate things. Yes, there's polygamy in the Bible, and I actually respect that about the Bible, that it doesn't sweep the messy stuff under the rug and cover it over like it's not there. It says, hey, this is what happened. He had two wives. And the reality is, if you go back and read all of the stories where there are multiple wives and there's polygamy, if you go back and read the stories, there are always deep problems and fractures in that family. The Bible faithfully shows what happens when there's polygamy. It's against God's plan for one husband and a wife to come together. And so the Bible, yes, it shows the messiness. It says, hey, here's raw truth. It doesn't cover over it, but it certainly does not endorse it. There's already going to be difficult in this family. There are two wives. But the other part of the issue is that one has children and the other doesn't. Can you imagine the tension that's going to create? Watch what happens. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. This is before Israel has inhabited Jerusalem. So the temple at this point is in a city called Shiloh. Right now, it is actually the tabernacle. The tabernacle serves as the temple. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Now look at what it says. Though the Lord had closed her womb. Who closed her womb? The Lord. That's difficult. 
And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Now look, it says it a second time. Because the Lord had closed her womb. Who closed her womb? The Lord. It says it twice. So went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? What a great guy, that Elkanah. All right, let's get the scenario here, okay? Already, this is difficult. This woman is suffering. Hannah is suffering barrenness. She can't have children. I believe that might be one of the most painful things for a a couple to suffer, especially for a woman. And, And as difficult as that is, in our day to suffer that, I I wonder if it might even be more difficult back in this day because of the level of pressure and expectation and identity for women in, in antiquity to be able to bear children. She's suffering barrenness. And if that wasn't difficult enough, it's not just that all her friends are having children. It's the other woman her husband is married to is having children. Talk about close proximity. And on top of that, if that's not difficult enough, it's not just that Penina is insensitive. Like, if Penina was insensitive, like, not self-aware and unthoughtful, like, that would be cruel enough. But she's intentionally trying to hurt Hannah because of her barrenness. Can you believe this? Like, it's more than just, like, these kind of phrases with barbs, like, oh, Hannah, you would understand if you had children. It's more than that. It's like when they're going to the temple as families to make offerings before the Lord. Here's, here's Elkanah standing before the priest. Here's Peninnah with all of her children, and on the other side is Hannah all alone. And Peninnah just kind of looks over and gives her a look. Can you imagine the pain? And, and here we have Elkanah, her husband. And there's a reason that his comments are preserved. I mean, there's a lot we don't know in the story, so why that detail? He offers, first of all, he's allowing this tension in his home. He's just allowing it to happen. It literally says Penina is her rival. He's allowing these women to have a rivalry. He's allowing that in his household and not doing anything about it. But on top of that, he's so tone deaf to the situation that he has no empathy. Hannah, why are you weeping all the time? I mean, what's your deal? Aren't I enough for you that you don't even need sons? Yeah, you're a real treat, Elkanah. What a treasure it is to have you as a husband. Here's why that's preserved. I think it's preserved so that we see that Hannah is totally alone in her house. She has no children. She has no support. She has no protection. She's alone. But here's the hard thing about this text. Let's not shy away from the tough things that the Bible says. It tells us who closed Hannah's womb. The Lord. Why would he do that? 
Let's look what it's, and see what happens. Verse 9. They had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, the feast. Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That kind of scenario where no haircutting is a certain kind of vow called a Nazarite vow. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of the, my great anxiety and vexation. They're in Shiloh for the feast. They finish the feast. Hannah can't sleep. She, we learn later she can't eat. She goes to the tabernacle. She, she's, she's at the temple. She's praying before the Lord, like just weeping bitterly, crying out to the Lord so fervently that no, no sound is coming out, just her mouth is moving. And she makes this vow to the Lord, if you will just give me a son, just one child, just give me a son, I'll give him back to you and we'll never cut the hair on his head. That means I'll give you a son who will have a Nazarite vow over his life, and he will serve you all the days of his life. If you'll just give me a son. Eli sees her and thinks she's a drunk woman. Now that's pretty bad. That's a pretty bad statement on the spiritual maturity of Israel and the spiritual maturity of their high priest. Apparently, seeing a woman or a person crying out to the Lord is so foreign that the priest doesn't even recognize what it looks like. He thinks clearly the more likely scenario is that she's been drinking. That's pretty bad. I want you to think, like, where is she while she's praying? Okay, like, think about this. It's not that Eli's coming across her praying in an alley. She's not crying out to the Lord behind a dumpster. She's at the temple. Like, that's where you go to pray. Like, why is this such a shocker to Eli? He says, why are you drunk, woman? And she's like, I'm praying. What is this, what is this saying? This is how alone Hannah is. Even, not only is the husband who should be stopping this cruelty, should be encouraging her, empathizing her, not only is she alone in her home, she doesn't even have a spiritual leader to lead her through this trial. She is alone with God. She is alone with the one who closed her womb. Now watch how this plays out. For starters, 
Eli is going to do some serious backpedaling. Then Eli answered, Oh, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Watch this. Let your servant find, what's that word? Favor. Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then, this is incredible. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. How does this play out? Hannah says, I'm not drunk, I'm praying. Eli says, oh yeah, oh, I knew that. I mean, you're drunk in the spirit. That's, that's what I meant, yeah. Um, may the Lord of uh, Israel just grant your request. Now be on your way, go on, get out of here, okay? Backpedaling seriously. How hungry is Hannah's soul to hear from God that she takes this message, even though it's coming from Eli, she takes this from the Lord and she says this, may I find favor in your sight. And she gets up, and this is an incredible miracle. From that moment on, her face is no longer sad. Is she pregnant yet? Is she holding a baby? She's clinging to the redemption she knows will come. Don't you love that it says her face is no longer sad? Probably because her heart's going to wrestle. But her face is going to choose not to be sad. This is a choice. It's not that she's magically like, oh, I'm happy again. Penina's not going to ridicule me. I'm not going to fight insecurity. No, her face is no longer sad. Her heart's going to wrestle to make that choice every day. They go back home and it says, in due time. It's so hard that the Bible doesn't tell us what that was. What, what's due time? Was that a month? Three months? Nine months? A year? At some point in her waiting, she sensed something jumping in her womb. And she knew that the Lord was giving her what she'd asked for. He gave her a son. And not just any son. He gave her Samuel. You know, the one this book is named after. What incredible redemption for Hannah. But here's what's interesting. You know, she says, may I find favor in your sight. You know what the Hebrew word right here for the ancient Hebrew word is for favor? Chan, as in Chana, Hannah. You know what Hannah's name means? Favor. You know what this is saying? It's opening up a passage and it's saying, let me show you what favor looks like. It's showing you to me, this is what 
favor. This is a demonstration of favor. That verse, the force of that verse in there is literally like this. Then Hannah said, may I find Hannah in your sight? This is what favor looks like. This woman is dealing with the one who closed her womb. God closes her womb because he intends to open it. But he's not just going to open her womb. You've got to see this is what favor looks like. Typically what we think favor and blessing looks like is I start here and then there's more blessing and more blessing and more blessing and more blessing. And it's like more favor and more favor and more good things and more good things and more good things. And it's like this one trajectory. That's not, according to this passage and according to the Bible, what favor looks like for the Christian. He brings her down to bring her up. This is what she says in the next chapter. Listen to this. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2. We've got a song from Hannah. it's It's a prayer, and look at what she says. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. We always think of God's blessing as he makes rich. He brings up. He he exalts. But this is telling us that's not the trajectory of how God shows his favor. He brings low so he can exalt. He humbles so he can glorify. But here's the thing you've got to realize. When he glorifies, he doesn't just bring low to bring you back up to where you were. He brings you to such soaring heights beyond where you were. Do you realize the fullness of Hannah's redemption? She said, oh Lord, please just give me a son. Do you know the next chapter, it shows us he didn't just give her a son. He gives her Samuel and then three more sons and two daughters. He piles it on. He doesn't just say, she doesn't say, give me a son, and then he, he gives her a son. Do, do you know who her son is? She just wants a son, but he gives, he gives her one of the greatest men in the history of all of Israel, the prophet Samuel. Who's Samuel? Samuel's the one who has the faith to anoint the youngest son of the house of Jesse, this shepherd boy, probably the least expected in all of Israel, he has the faith to say, it's this one who's going to be the next king of Israel. And he anoints this boy, David. Who's David? He's not just the next king. Hannah's son anoints the house of Israel, the dynasty of all of Israel that all the kings come from. And it's not just the house and dynasty of Israel, it's the house from which the Messiah will come. Hannah's son does that. Do you see, he doesn't just bring down to bring you back up to where you were. He brings you down and brings you to heights you cannot yet fathom. The way it's put by Hannah, probably something like 1,000, maybe 1,100 BC. She says, the Lord kills and raises back to life. Can you think of anyone else that God did that with? That's the framework, Christian. That's what he did with his son. Jesus, the son of God, was in the glories of heaven. 
And out of obedience to God the Father, he comes down to earth, humbled and impoverished as part of creation. He's impoverished, but then he's humiliated, then he's tortured, and then he's killed. So that God can raise him back to life and then raise him up to the right hand of the Father so that his name is above every name, so that the universe spends the rest of eternity praising the name of Jesus. That's the framework. That's what he does. Christian, you bear his name. That's the pattern. That's the pattern throughout the Bible. Think about some of these stories, and maybe you've heard some of these stories before. There's a guy named Joseph in the Old Testament. And he's a boy, and he gets this dream where God says, you're going to be great, Joseph. And he can't fathom what God means by that. He thinks that just means he's going to take over his father's business. And about two seconds after he has that dream, his brothers sell him into slavery. you imagine dealing with that God? You say, I'm going to be great. Now I'm being hauled off to Egypt to be a slave. He's like, oh, I don't know what to do with this God. Now he's a slave, and then he gets falsely accused, and he's now worse than a slave. He's in the dungeon. And then he's all the way down in the pit. And from there, God raises him all the way up to the right hand of the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. And he's not just serving Pharaoh in Pharaoh's court. He is running all of Egypt. He couldn't even imagine what God meant by greatness, by that promise over his life. But God brought him low because he was going to take him to soaring heights. How about Moses? He grows up in in, uh, Pharaoh's house. He's the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he's like, oh, I see what you're doing. All of the Hebrews are enslaved. I'm going to be the deliverer. Oh, this makes perfect sense. This is great. I'm going to deliver them. And he was exactly right. But not at first. He ends up having to be a fugitive on the run. He's gets, he has to flee Egypt. And he goes from being in Pharaoh's house to tending sheep in the wilderness. He goes from being among the most powerful people in the world to being around sheep alone in the wilderness working for his father-in-law. And 40 years go by. And God says, now go back to Egypt. And he goes back and he redeems God's people through such miracles he couldn't have possibly imagined. What's the trajectory? He brings down low so he can send them soaring. How about David? After this guy Samuel anoints him, I mean, how do you like talk to your other friends, you know, in sixth grade or whatever? Yeah, I guess I'm going to be king. It's going to be amazing. And then if that's not something, then he goes and he kills a giant. He kills Goliath. And now all the top 40 stations are singing the David song. I mean, it's the hit. Saul's killed his thousands. David is ten thousands. I mean, his star is on the rise. He's got to be like, this is incredible, God. I mean, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. I feel your favor. Except that the current king, Saul, gets jealous of him and tries to kill him a lot. And he spends the next decades of his life running for his life, living in caves so that God can make him king, as was his promise. But not just any king, the king. Do you see the trajectory, Christian? He brings down low so he can bring up high to soaring heights. We wonder how how does blessing work, God? How does favor work? He's he's not just going to make a a blip in the road and then make it right. He's going to bring you down and show you his power to bring you up beyond what you could imagine. What is favor? What is chana? 
I want to give you three things that favor is that this passage teaches, and I want you to write this down. We want to be a note-taking church, so grab your, your journal, something to write with, an app on your phone. I want you to write these three things down. Here's what favor is. The first thing, favor is released in Jesus. How do you get favor? It's released through Jesus. Here's what Roman 8 says, and we sang this this morning. God is saying to you, he says, if I did not hold back from giving you my son, what else would I hold back from you? You think I'm holding something back? Do you think I'm gonna give the son of God, Jesus, to pay for your sins? Then I'm gonna give Jesus and say, oh, but you asking for that promotion, that's too much. He's given you Jesus. Romans 8 says, do you think he's holding anything back from you? He's given you everything, and that's why at the end of Romans 8, it says, no, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you've put your faith in Jesus and realize it's him and him alone that washes your sins away, gives you forgiveness, um, reconnects you with God, that means there's no more anger and wrath for you. Because of Jesus, if you put your faith in him, there is nothing but love from your father. Because of Jesus, he's pouring out favor on you. If you have Jesus, you have the fullness of God's favor on you. You can't throttle more favor in your life. That's impossible. Because God does not deal with you according to your righteousness, your good deeds, your good works, and thank goodness. Because do we honestly think our good deeds would impress the most holy God? No, our, our godliness account, our righteousness account, our good works account, Jesus takes all of our sin and he pours his perfect righteousness into our account so it's overflowing. You already have a fullness of favor in your life if you have Jesus. But see, we, we actually would wish it was a different way sometimes. We actually wish we could put our hand on the blessings throttle and say, okay, I actually maybe, maybe sometimes we say, man, I, I'd actually prefer it this way, God. I'll be a little more obedient because I need a little more blessing in my life, a little more of your favor. I have this big thing coming up and I just need you to come through for me, so I'm going to pray a little more, go to church a little more, maybe be a little kinder, maybe give a little more. And so we want to throttle forward our, our obedience in order to get more blessing. But that's not loving God. That's loving God's blessing. That's not how it works. If you have Jesus, you, are, you have his righteousness. Our lives may look like this, but his righteousness is how God is dealing with us. He's pouring out his favor on us. He, he's dumped it out upon us. And so our response to that level of favor and blessing is we just throw the throttle forward and say, God, I'm gonna be as obedient as I possibly can. I'm giving you my whole life. I'm all in, full throttle, obedient to you, surrendered to you in light of all that you've given me in Jesus. See, favor is released in Jesus. It's not a matter of you doing a little more good or avoiding those bad sins, we do that because we love God. He's already pouring his favor on you if you have Jesus. Favor is released in Jesus. Here's the second thing. Favor is realized in Jesus. 
There is a moment when you are in heaven, when you're standing before Jesus, that you will see the fullness of all the things he's redeeming in your life. The fullness of his favor. Can you think about, I mean, what did Hannah actually see in her life? Maybe she, she got to see her son and her kids. Maybe she lived long enough to see uh, her son become a great prophet. Maybe she lived long enough to see that he anointed some little shepherd boy, maybe. Can you imagine how shocked she was when she got to heaven? And she saw who her son became, one of the greatest men in the history of Israel. When she saw who it was that her son anointed, the house of David. When she saw who it was that, that came from that line, Jesus, the son of God. Can you imagine like when she got the full picture of her redemption? Because remember, our life doesn't stop in this, in this life. It extends into eternity. Why do we think the redemption stops in this life? He continues to show us the extent of the redemption throughout history. Can you imagine her shock when she realized there was going to be two books named after that son in the Bible? Can you imagine her shock when generation after generation after generation remember her story and talk about it and celebrate it? And the number of, of individuals, the number of women who draw strength from Hannah's story, what an incredible redemption that she got to experience continuing on into eternity. You may see some redemption in your life from the struggles that you go through. That is just the beginning of what you can't even imagine you will get to see in heaven. Favor is released in Jesus. Favor is realized in Jesus. But favor resembles Jesus. We bear his name so our life is going to follow the same pattern death and resurrection, humbled for glory. We're going to follow in that footsteps, but I want you to think about what happened with Jesus. It, it, what God does when he rises up, he doesn't stop at redemption. He goes to resurrection and recreation. Here's what I mean by that. The world is full of stories of people overcoming hard things. I mean, you can watch a talk show and see an inspiring story, and those are great. The world is full of those stories of people overcoming hard things. But no one can do what God does. He actually takes the pain itself and turns it into the thing that's glorious. He recreates it. He takes the ashes of our situation and he actually recreates those ashes into the beauty. Can you think about Hannah with me for a second? Her pain and her suffering is from her barrenness. But it becomes actually her barrenness that is her glory. You know the, the patriarchs of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do you know that every single one of their wives, the matriarchs, those three women, each one of them were barren and miraculously God provided a child? Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, all barren, and God miraculously gave them a child. There's this elite sorority of women that walk through barrenness, in the Bible, that walk through barrenness and are given a miraculous child who's someone of significance. How about Elizabeth in the New Testament, her son John the Baptist? She was barren into her old age, and God overcomes that and gives her a child, and she joins that sorority of women who have miraculous births. I'd say the Virgin Mary had a somewhat miraculous birth as well. And it is actually Hannah's barrenness 
that is what puts her in that elite sorority of women and becomes her glory. She joins that group of women that overcame, that God used. See, God takes the ashes and makes it into, some, makes it into the exact thing that is the beauty. Can you picture Jesus, when he, what the Bible tells us, when he came back to life and he's appearing to his followers and they can't even believe it? They're like, we saw you dead. How are you alive? And he says, come. What does he point them to? He says, see the scars. Do you know that his resurrected, recreated body had the scars? But are they ugly? Christian, can you imagine that moment when you see your Savior for the first time and you imagine the moment of seeing his face? Something you've never seen before, yet it's so intimately familiar. And after looking him in the face, the face of your Savior, I know the very next thing I want to see are the scars that purchased my redemption. It's those very scars I want to kiss, I want to weep on those scars on his hands and on his feet. Those very scars that are no longer ugly, they're the most beautiful marks in all of the universe. Only God can take our ashes and make them into something beautiful. What he does, he doesn't just have us overcome difficulty. He takes our difficulty and recreates it for glory. Only God can do that. You see, the Bible says he made the whole world from nothing. He's the only one that can take nothing and then make stuff. If he can do that, imagine what he can do with your ashes. He can make it into something beautiful. Christian, I don't know what trial you're walking through, how he's brought you low today. I don't know what difficulty you're in. But can we take the step today that Hannah does? And even before we've seen how he's going to bring redemption, even before we see the answer to all of our prayers, can we know who he is? He is one that doesn't change. He's the same one who authored Joseph's life and Moses' life and Hannah's life and David's life. He is authored with the same precision your story. And he doesn't change. He will redeem beyond what you can imagine. So today, can you turn a corner and rise up from your ashes and choose joy? Choose to command your soul to worship the Lord. And as you wrestle for joy in your heart, can you choose to have joy on your face and walk forward knowing that the redemption for every single one of your scars, he will not waste one of them. He is one that redeems those and recreates them, and the redemption will continue into eternity. Rise with joy in this season. But there's another one of you that are here and you're saying, look, I, I just don't even know if I believe God. I don't know if there, I believe there is a God. Because of the difficulty I have walked through, it's the, precisely because of my scars that I can't believe that there's a God. But can I ask you, which universe would you rather live in? One where the pain is just empty, meaningless chaos? Or a world that is sovereignly governed 
by a father who loves you and will turn all your scars around for good and redeem you. Please take that step. Put your faith in Jesus because he took scars for you. Take that step today. Can we have a moment of prayer? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're watching online, watching at the pilot campus, just let's have a moment of prayer. Is that you today? Do you want to take that step of faith? And today you say that you want to put your faith in Jesus, and today you're saying, look, I'm ready to take that step. I don't have all my answers, but I'm going to choose today to believe and surrender my life to Jesus. No one's looking around. Everyone has their heads bowed. But if that is you today, here's what I want you to do. I want you something bold. Because Jesus did something bold for you. He took scars for you. If you're ready to take that step, here's what I want you to do. With no one looking around, I just want you to slip your hand in the air and put it back down and say, I'm ready. I want to take that step. I want to put my faith in Jesus. Just slip your hand in the air now. Amen. Amen. Anyone else, you say, I'm in. I'm following Jesus. I'm giving him my, my whole life. Just slip your hand in the air and put it back down. Amen, amen. Praise God, praise God. If that was you, you raised your hand, I want you just to silently, in this moment, repeat these words after me. Just silently in your heart, say this to God. Say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross to pay for all my sins. Thank you for that forgiveness. I surrender my life to you. And I know it is because of you that I will spend eternity in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.